Thank you. Turn in your Bibles to, um, there are two readings this morning, one from 2 Corinthians and then the other from 1 Corinthians. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 to 16. And then 1 Corinthians, really, chapter 13. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Then if you turn to 1 Corinthians, the first of the two letters to the Corinthians in Scripture. And I want to begin reading chapter 13 with the end of chapter 12 where Paul writes, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide These three, but the greatest of these is love. Pursue love. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who speaks and you share your mind with us. You speak in many ways through creation, which declares the glory of God, but you speak so clearly through your word and through Christ Jesus. So thank you that we can reorient our lives as we live in this 21st century as your people. Bless us and help us as we think this into our being and into our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. 
I know you're not uh, strangers to RTS. Uh, we have had uh, some of our professors come here, uh, Mike Glodo and Mark Futato, and um, they're, they're great guys. It's my blessing and privilege to be uh, sort of the leader of the pack over there and uh, to be training up a new generation of pastors and counselors and uh, teachers and apologists and missionaries and just training people who want to know the word. It's, it's a great privilege. I don't know if you're familiar with um, the concept of a seminary. I have no idea what Mark says to you when he's here, but um, I trust him. But uh, the word seminary comes from a Latin word, seminarium. The core is semen or seed. So you think about a seed, and the original concept for a seminary was the same as what we understand by a nursery. I moved uh, to Florida from Colorado a few years ago, four and a half years ago, and it's so different in terms of the things that you see in a nursery. I love going to nurseries in Florida. In Colorado, you know, a lot of cactus, real dry, high plains desert. Here, you know, you get, you know, citrus, lemons, orange, and all these exotic, you know, southern hemisphere plants that you've never even seen in your life. And the goal of a, of a, of a nursery worker of a seminary, a seminarium in its original sense, was to help get your plants growing with strong stock, good seed, you know, um, get it off to a great start. Not that you want all the, the fruit bearing to take place in the nursery. You don't. You want to bring it home, have it in your yard. And so um, the seminarium, the nursery is there to get it off to a great start so that it will produce much fruit. That idea was transferred to theological training schools over time. So the idea of a theological seminary is to train future pastors, that is the pastors of your grandchildren, some of you are, you know, you have grandchildren, uh, and to make sure that they are well trained in the word of God, believing it, holding fast to the gospel and to the faith entrusted to them. So that's that's our joy, our privilege, our responsibility, and I, I hope every time an RTS person is here, you will pray for us, because this is really critical work at this time in history, especially when a lot of churches are given up on the scriptures, and a lot of seminaries are into other things. Uh, we, we still believe the Bible is the inerrant, truthful word of God, and the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. So I put some uh, literature on the back table about RTS. I hope you'll pick it up um, and look at it and pray for us. Uh, There's also our magazine, the Ministry and Leadership magazine. If you'd like to to have it sent to you, there's a little sign-up sheet. I also brought along a book that I I had the privilege of writing a book with my dad uh, about three years ago. My father is 90 years old. He was uh, president of the Moody Bible Institute for many years. And he wrote early in his life a book called How to Begin the Christian Life, which Billy Graham used very widely. He wrote another one called How to Continue the Christian Life. So when he was 85, I said, Dad, you're still lucid. How about one more? Uh, What about finishing? And you know what he said to me? He said, you don't know how hard it is to write a book. I'm done writing books. And I said, well, well, let's have a conversation of what it means to follow Jesus in the second half of life, which, by the way, begins at about 35 statistically, all right? For those of you who said to yourself, I'm not in the second half of life. Um, so what does it mean to follow him? So we had this conversation, and Moody Press printed it up, and it's been a great blessing to a lot of people, and uh, I brought a few copies along uh, for you today. Well, open your Bibles to our, our text this morning. To uh, I want you to... 
uh, have it open first. We're going to look at these two passages, 2 Corinthians, which we'll look at first, and then 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. It's really interesting to, to learn how our months got their names. You know, January got its name how? Do you know? Janus, right, the god of beginnings. Um, March was named after? Mars. Mars, yeah, that's right, the god of uh, war. But how about February? February was named for Februa, uh, for a feast of fertility and purification that was um, known as Lupercalia. Uh, it was a Roman feast and celebrated throughout the ancient world to, uh, to ensure fertility for the coming spring. So what did they do? They sacrificed uh, goats, and they would take goat skin strips soaked in blood called Februa and strike the young women with these strips of Februa. And they believed that this would purify them and ensure fertility. And the lashing was called Februatio. So our month February, you didn't know that, but our month February gets its name from that event. And Lupercalia also had another rite associated with it that was kind of a, it was a, a kind of a, a, a sexual lottery uh, that took place when the Roman girls would have their names and they'd put the names in an urn and during Lupercalia, uh, the men of a village would come to the urn and draw a name and they would keep the woman as a companion for the rest of the festival. Well, this kind of festival started to, to turn a lot of people sour, especially women sour, and early Roman Christian pastors began to speak against it, just like Old Testament prophets warned against Ashtaroth and Baal, Christian pastors in Rome would warn of the corruptions of Lupercalia. And they would say things like, um, this is not the true God, and uh, that God's favor can't be manipulated through fertility, and uh, such practices don't purify an individual or make them more fertile. And real purification, they would say, comes only through Jesus Christ and, and his cross. That's where ultimate purification is found. And by the way, they would add, Jesus points us in the way of love. And his way is really a better way. And so, just as a historical footnote, they, early church uh, people in the city of Rome, they chose February 14th as St. Valentine's Day, as an appropriate substitute for Lupercalia. Of course, there was a real Valentine. He was beheaded for his Christian witness around 270 A.D. Like many other martyrs, his bones were preserved. A church was built over the place that he died. He was known for his love. We don't know a whole lot about him, but he was known for his love for God and for Christ and for people. And um, in 496, the Bishop of Rome set aside the 14th of February to honor, to honor him. So we have this memorial. We forget, you know, all the Februatio stuff in Lupercalia. That's all gone. We think of it as a romantic holiday. Um, but um, it, uh, it, it's, it was a, a fascinating romantic holiday with very deep, interesting roots. And as our nation and our culture moves further away from Christianity... Um, we move away from the, 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 all these ties, and we, we're even, I think, I sometimes think we're moving backwards towards returning to Lupercalia and all the crazy stuff of uh, Februara, which brings us to Corinth, doesn't it? <laughs> Corinthians. 
It's a book in the Bible, but it was a city. And Paul planted a church in Corinth. Uh, You can read about it in Acts 16 to 18. He planted it and uh, wrote this letter to them around A.D. 53 to 55. So this is about 20 to 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Corinth is a bustling commercial trade center. It's known for its philosophy, for its art, for its vice, and for its immorality. And so Paul is writing to this church that he planted, and he's giving them pastoral guidance so that they can walk in Christ's way. And he was concerned. You can tell as you listen to or read 1 Corinthians that he's concerned with their questions because he answers a lot of them, and he's concerned with the, the, the path they're on. Word has reached Paul that the city was getting into the church and more than the church was getting into the city. And um, so some of these converts who are part of the church in Corinth, they were reverting to their pagan background so that there wasn't really much to distinguish them from non-believers, Corinthians. In fact, did you know that the city of Corinth was dominated by a temple to Aphrodite, and uh, it had about a thousand prostitutes, the historians tell us. So that's the kind of city it was. And the, the word um, to Corinthianize meant to give yourself to the Corinthian ways, or to sexually immoral ways. And so when Paul writes this, he talks about a lot of things, but he's talking about the problem of incest. He's talking about, um, you know, your body is the temple of God. He's talking about some who are going to prostitutes, abusing their Christian freedom. And he says in chapter 4, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children about how you should live in light of all the stuff around you. It's fascinating, isn't it? And he, he will say several times in the letter, you know, flee sexual immorality, pursue holiness and, and godliness. There are people saying, you know, but everybody, this is our culture and this is natural. And Paul keeps coming back to say, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Use it to serve God. Don't let it be joined to a prostitute. Um, your body is filled with the temple of the Holy, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, so glorify God with your body. Now, let's just back up for a second. How did Paul come to that viewpoint? The clue is in the first passage we read. So, let's just really quickly go to 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 5. How did Paul come to this whole understanding of, of love and of how we're to treat our bodies and everything and, and how we deal with people? You see, Paul's view of love was transformed when he met Jesus Christ. And uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, the first thing he says, verse 14, is the love of Christ compels us. It controls us. Um, it now guides us in the way that we think, verse 14. It, um, it keeps us in bounds. Well, how did the love of Christ come to control him? Verse 14, well, because the, the one died for all. He died uh, for the world. He died for the church. And now his love uh, guides us. And so all died. We died to our old ways. That's what happened. Well, well, why are we to die to our old ways? Verse 15, well, because that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was, was raised. That's why. I mean, we are now called to live a new way and to look at people with New eyes, and then he goes on in verse 16, and from now on we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. 
Uh, we regard him thus no longer, because if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. So he's saying, look, Jesus changed the way we look at everything, including love. Isn't it interesting how Jesus changes the way you look at people? I think early in my life, uh, I, you know, like everybody else, we, we look at a person and we judge them by what we see, their appearance. We make our quick judgments about who they are. I remember as a young pastor, I was doing that just because it's so natural. We all do it. And I remember meeting some incredible people who, if you looked on, on the outside, they, they, they did not look, you know, as the world would say, sharp, um, particularly attractive. But as I got to the, know them, I realized what a treasure this person is. You know, uh, the, the, I, I felt rebuked for how I thought about them. You've never done that, I'm sure, but I'm such a deep sinner that I, I did. I, I, I still fall into that. Or you'd come across somebody who's got a disability and you kind of write them off as weird or odd or, and you, you're looking at them with just kind of fleshly, worldly eyes. Not particularly, they're not particularly useful. And then all of a sudden, you go through an experience, you get to know them and, 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 and Jesus gives you new eyes to look at them and you realize how important it is to know them, bless them, love them, uh, be with them, because they, they, they also give us so much. You know the way you look at men and women and how the world tempts us to look at them as by external experience. And we all probably do it in one way or the other. And we look at them, you know, in a very surface way. But then we meet Jesus. And what does he do? He tells us we're to no longer live for ourselves. He gives us a new Love in our hearts, the love of Christ controls us, compels us, and so now we regard no one according to the flesh. See, that's what happened to Paul, and that's what happens to believers who link into Jesus by a living faith. He, he changes the way you think about people and about love. He gives you a new vision for this whole love thing. And so you've got to ask yourself, of course, have you come to Jesus has he transformed you? I mean, this is ground zero for everything I'm talking about. He's the one who makes the change. Have you put your trust in him? Have you drawn love from him? He's the living Christ. Well, that takes us to the love chapter. So let's come to our real text. That's just background, okay? And the rest of the sermon's not going to be, you know, incredibly long, so don't, don't, uh, don't be worried. But I want you to turn to now 1 Corinthians 13. Known as what? What's it known as? The love chapter. Where do you hear 1 Corinthians 13 read most of the time? At weddings, right. But it's not just for weddings. No, it's not. So two things set the context of this passage. First of all, he's talking about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. This wider discussion and... He's saying, look, if you are exercising your gift or you're serving in the church and you don't have love that's motivating and driving you, look out. That's not the way these gifts of the Spirit are to be used. The gifts of the Spirit are to be fortified and energized by the fruits of the Spirit. So that's, that's one part of the context. The other part of the context is just Corinth. Many Corinthians have bought another vision of love. The world has got, the city's gotten in, you know, to their minds. It's messing with them. They're buying Corinthianized 
lifestyles. They want Jesus and the old ways. They're thinking they both fit. They don't realize that it doesn't work that way. And, um, and it's showing. And so that's where Paul begins chapter 13, really at the end of chapter 12, when he says, and I will show you a more excellent way. More excellent than doing ministry on your own without love. More excellent than the way Corinthians naturally think about love. I'll show you a more excellent way. So my quick outline, there, he makes three affirmations in this wonderful chapter. First, about the importance of love. Secondly, uh, uh, he gives us a definition of love. And thirdly, he talks about the endurance of love. Let's just look at those real quickly. First of all, he, the first affirmation, he, he's affirming the importance of love in verses 1 to 3. Love's supremacy. And he, he's using some gifts that he sees operating in the church. You know, if you, you may be speaking with tongues of men and angels. You may know all the languages on earth. You may have incredibly deep knowledge. You may be extremely eloquent in your prophetic powers. But if you don't have love as you exercise these gifts, uh, they're nothing. They're noise. Now, I've got to tell you, just before we go any further, that Paul is not saying that love is everything and these other things are meaningless. No, he, he affirms the importance of gifts and knowledge and prophecy. But he says they are insignificant without love. Love doesn't displace these things, but love's absence renders them valueless. So if you have vision, as people of faith do, to move mountains, and you are a visionary in the body, and you have not love, look out. And if you are a generous person, you have a gift of generosity and and, um, and you have resources, but you, you don't have love in your heart for the people you're giving to, and it's not driven by love, you're bankrupt. And if you're sacrificing yourself in ministry, even to the point where you're going to be burned for your faith, but you don't have love, you, you, gain, you gain nothing. Now, this came as a shocker to people who are probably given to ministry, who are faithful in their gift and their task. And it's a, it's a shocker that it's, it's just kind of worthless unless it's surrounded and strengthened by love. By the way, you could add to his list too. If, if you do administration or IT, or if you teach on a seminary faculty, but you don't have love, something's terribly wrong. Uh, you could you could add uh, if if you're a if you're pastoring or preaching. Do you know it's possible to preach without love for the people that you 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 can so love preaching and the mechanics and the history and all that that you you don't really care about the people you're preaching to. You just give them what you plan on giving them, and you haven't prayed it through and asked God to fill you with His love. Um, this could happen with anything with being an artist or having a talent. I had breakfast this morning. I ran into a guy who was an artist uh, just down in Vero Beach. I hadn't seen him in, in a number of years. He was actually from Colorado. He went to my church there. And, and, and uh, I was thinking about artists, and, and they love their gift, and they try to fine-tune it. But, but if, you, if you don't have love, it's, it, it's nothing. 
Your priorities are, are, are wrong. If you have the right doctrine, and all the doctrines are perfectly in tune, but you don't have love, something's drastically wrong. You, you hear what he's saying about the importance of love? It, it was kind of a shocking thing to shake us up and say, where, are your priorities right? Are you so given to your gift and your interest that you've set love aside and you've said, that's not really that important. What's really important is what I'm doing. No, it's not so. Return to sanity. Come back to the right priorities. Secondly, he gives us a definition of love. So what is love? Verses 4 to 7. Well, it's hard to define, isn't it? It's really hard to define. If I came up to you in the narthex and said, what is love? You'd probably stammer and stumble around like I would and say, oh, man, ask somebody else. Ask Zach. (laughs) It's hard to find a perfect definition of love, but here's as good a one as you're going to find. Love is patient and kind, verse 4. Doesn't envy and boast. I mean, that... To summarize what he's saying, love, love is self-giving. Um, it's sacrificial self-giving. It's a selfless concern for the welfare of others. It's not called forth by any quality in that person or lovableness in that person, but it's the product of a will to love and obedience to God's commandment, an acknowledgement of Christ's love for us. That's what love is. And so he defines love here positively and negatively. Oh, it's good. It, it's, um, it's helpful. Positively, love is patient with people. Ouch. Love is kind. It is, it's gracious to people. It's known for being gracious. Cares for more, more for others than for self. Love rejoices with truth. It's devoted to truth in everything. It cares about the truth. Real love does. Love bears all things, that is, it puts up with hard things. It believes all things, not that it's gullible, but it's trusting God all the way through and looking for the best in people. It hopes all things. It doesn't look back and keep a list. It endures all things. That's positive side of love. Here's the negative side. Love is not given to envy. What you don't have, and others do. And you want to get it. And sometimes you want to trip them up. Love doesn't boast. It doesn't strut. It's not arrogant. It doesn't have a swelled head. It is never rude. Love does not insist on its own way, forcing itself onto others. Love doesn't fly off the handle easy. It's not irritable. It doesn't harbor deep resentment. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. Wow. You know, there, there was confusion at that time as there is today about, about love. There were people in this atmosphere in Corinth that would think of love as, love is just a powerful, intoxicating emotion that comes upon you and you have no power. And when it comes, you just give yourself to it. That's how many people would define love then and now. Or some confused love with lust. Love is just um, fulfilling your desires. Who cares? about the person, just fulfilling your desires with them. No! Paul's writing, and God is telling us through Paul, love is self-giving. So here you have these two visions of love. You have one back then, and it's being re-embraced by our culture, you know? 
our Fifty Shades culture, we're reverting to Lupercalia. And you have this vision of love that is given by Christ to Paul. And it's a better vision. It's a stronger vision. It's a vision that is designed by God. That acknowledges, by the way, that we are sexual beings, but that God has designed our sexuality to be expressed in a certain way. A love that is to treat our spouses with respect and honor and not abuse. It won't hurt people or control them or degrade them or manipulate them because Jesus' way is, is better. There's something better than just sheer eros. And Christianity doesn't get rid of eros. It just protects it and lifts it with agape. It's a love that's characterized by goodness and sacrificing for another. It's a love that cares for the people that you're with. And so what happened is this vision of Jesus-like love began to take hold. It redirected men in Corinth from the temple of Aphrodite to their homes. And women saw a new loyalty from their husband and a new devotion to their family. And Greeks and Romans saw that Christians lived a different kind of life. And instead of the normal Corinthianizing, they saw that Christian families were flourishing. And instead of rampant sexual disease, they saw that Christian practiced a healthier lifestyle. In short, they saw a better way, the way of Christ, and word began to spread. And some joined the church, and they latched on to a new set of heroes and celebrated people like a valentine who pointed in this way. So I want to ask you, what is the vision of love that you've taken in and sort of marinated in recently. There are two visions that are contending for your mind and heart. And here, God gives us His vision that is articulated by by Paul. Maybe we've got the wrong vision. Maybe we need to trade the Lupercalia vision in for a better vision of love. And then he comes to the end of his description in verses 8 to 13. And we have not only the importance of love... And the definition of love, but we have an affirmation of the endurance of love. And his big point is simply this, that love, this kind of love, it just lasts. All the things that we, we give ourselves to, here's another outcoming. All the things we give ourselves to, prophecy and tongues and knowledge, they're going to pass away. Love endures to the end. And, and here's where it hurts, because we live like all the things we give ourselves to. You know, good things. Like, they're the most important thing. And this chapter just kind of wallops us and says, no, that's really not the case. It's, it's actually the opposite. What really is important in your life is love. Using all these things that God has given you and serving others with them. Love is what's going to last now, I love his statement about knowing in part here. Uh, reminds me there's so much we don't understand in this life, right? We see through a glass dimly. There, there are many mysteries. There are things that happen to us we just will not understand until we're in heaven. But this we can be sure of. In fact, there are a lot of things in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, that are kind of hard to figure out. 
it's a book that raises a lot of questions. But one of the most clear affirmations in all of 1 Corinthians, besides the importance of Christ crucified, is the importance and the endurance of, of love. Make no mistake about it. This is, this is what's going to last. Um, well, three things, actually. Faith, hope, and love abide. But hope is going to be, be fulfilled at Christ's return. And faith is going to become sight. But love will never pass away. It will break on the shores of eternity because it's, it's the... God is love. And the love of Christ in, endures. And so if love lasts... What are we doing? What are we doing with our lives? What are we doing with our focus? And so that's where he ends the chapter just saying, so, yeah, the greatest disease is love. Pursue love. That's the command. I don't care where you are, on which part of the road of life, or how old, or how young, or which end you're at, but pursue love. Pursue love. I like the way the message paraphrases it. Go after a life of love as if your life depended on it, because it does. Not just any kind of love. Go after the love of Christ, the way of love commanded by Christ. Keep your head and evaluate every other kind of love by this standard. Pursue this kind of love. Pursue it in your family. Pursue it in your marriage as the first thing. Pursue it with your friends. Pursue it in your neighborhood with the people right next door to you, whom so often we don't even know their names. Pursue it in your church. Pursue it in your church. It's interesting, you know, at RTS, we've got lots of students, and students are on an academic track, and they're pursuing degrees, and they want to do really well, and academics tends to become everything. And and this is a a really important reminder um, Although I've never preached this to my students, they, they, they actually need to hear this. Uh, their, their wives, um, some of the guys probably would like for them to hear this. Um, some of the gals need to hear this who are students. Um, I remember earlier in my life, I was pursuing my PhD, and I remember the day I finished my PhD. I was so relieved. It's so much work. Any of you, you have a PhD, you know what I'm talking about. It's a labor of love, but the, the emphasis is on labor. You know, it's a lot of work, and there's a lot of sacrifice to get a Ph.D., but I remember when I finished it, and I was thinking, wow, I'm done with my education. And it was about a year later that God just started teaching me again the, the importance of that I am not completely educated. He looked at me, and he said, Sweeting, uh, you have not yet got your terminal degree. And I said, Lord, what is that terminal degree? And he says, this is it, love. This is the terminal degree that really matters. You can use your knowledge for love's sake, but don't you pursue your interests without it. Pursue love. And I want to ask you, do you, are you still pursuing this terminal degree? I don't care how old you are. You're not out of this school. In fact, God will put things into your life. He does all the time to teach you the next lesson of this. Sometimes it's a hard relationship in a marriage, and we think the right thing to do is to get out of it. But in truth, God says, no, the right thing to do is learn to love in it. This is, your, this is one of the, the lesson plans that I have for you. 
Sometimes it's a difficult person that he puts into our life. You know, in many different ways this comes at us, but the ultimate degree, the ultimate lesson that he wants us to, to grab is this lesson of love, pursuing love. And, and, and I want to end with this because once you grasp this, you may say two things that I said to myself this weekend. I said first was, oh, have I failed in this so much. In fact, recently I said to my wife, I am so sorry for being a jerk. I, and she, she, she knew I was right, you know. <laughs> you, you will fail, but the, the good thing is there is grace for failures, and there's a Lord who is there to pick you up and to reshape your vision in your life. Or you may say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm too weak for this. I, I don't have it in me to love. I, it's, there's so much other stuff. But the Lord says, no, I can fill your heart and transform your heart. And I can compel and control you so that you can look at others differently. That's what I do. And I want to just say he's there for you. He can fill your weakness with his strength. He can lift you up from your failures. He can sharpen your vision of love. He can trade your vision from one of Februatio and Lupercalia or whatever else to his glorious vision of a better way. Do you believe that? Now, I know Valentine's Day was last week, but we're still in February. And this is a really important thing, whatever month we're in. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we lay our lives before you, and we do admit we fall short in so many ways. Thank you that you are a God of fantastic mercy and grace. You look at us in our self-obsessed mental framework, patterns of living, and you offer to transform us and strengthen us and put us on a better track. We give you praise. Thank you, Lord, that your love is so sweet, it's so good, it's so right. Lord, give us courage to think as we see other visions around us. Give us courage to love radically the people that you put in our path. Help us to so love and bless others that they may look up and glorify their Father in heaven. I pray your strength for this church, Lord. I pray that in this time of in-between pastors, that perhaps this is the lesson that would, would grip the leadership and the members and that they would be ready when the time comes for new leadership because they have grown in the school of love. We ask all this in the strong and powerful and wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.